This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance and Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The year is 1988, and I'm not bad. I just pod that way. The movie? Who Framed Roger Rabbit? everyone and welcome to unspooled didn't get my back there amy (laughs) but you know what i don't mind it because people don't know this but you are a fully animated character and sometimes we don't sync up and that's what's going to make today's discussion so good because we can uh we have the experience you being uh hand-drawn me being live action (laughs) and this is what makes the podcast so good you know i actually do think of myself a little bit as a human cartoon so i will take that you know, Amy, who framed Roger Rabbit when we first started the voting for our fifth anniversary audience appreciation month was the number one film by far and wide. We knew we had a number one so much so that when I put out the list of, hey, let's narrow it down, let's kind of pull some other films up. Other films start to top it. We didn't even reference Roger Rabbit because we knew we had our number one. Now, Hot Fuzz is our official number one with the most votes out of anything. But this was our original number one. And I'm, I'm frankly a little surprised because I feel like people don't talk about this movie that much. Like if you're under 30, do you know about Roger Rabbit? It's so weird. When I was doing my Roger Rabbit research, that's something that kept coming up. People being like, this is just a film for people of a certain age and the youth have not been introduced to Roger Rabbit. And I was like, what? That hasn't occurred to me. Can it be true if so many of our listeners voted for it? I, I think it can't be. I mean, we're breaking the internet. We're, we're, we're figuring out it's different. And this is an interesting film because not only is it technologically a film that pushes boundaries, it was, at the time of its release, the most expensive movie ever made. It was beat a couple years later by Terminator 2 Judgment Day. But this was a big deal. This is one of those movies where I think we're used to, and it flopped, right? Like whenever you hear, oh, they spent that much money on this. You know, and this is a movie where, you know, all the people that we love in this, you know, from Christopher Lloyd and Bob Hoskins, they were not the, the original choices. Even Roger Rabbit wasn't going to be played by Charles Fleischer. He was going to be played by Pee Wee Herman. Which, by the way, Paul, I wanted to ask you, I don't even understand how Charles Fleischer, the voice of Roger Rabbit, did the stuttering 
please, the please. I have been practicing and I can't even get close. Do you have? Are you a voice guy? Do you know how to do that? I don't know if I could go please. Like something like like that. I mean, I don't know if it's as good as that. I'd have to listen to it again. It's so smooth. It just sounds like it just rolls off of his tongue. Well, this is a film where not only is Charles Fleischer bringing the heat, it is a movie that has so many animated cameos. I mean, like, I think the number is, you know, like over 185 different, you know, hand-drawn animations. Oh, oh, it's actually 140 pre-existing ones. And then there are plenty that are completely original, uh, too. Um, We're going to get into all of this, the original source material of the book, you know, and really ask the question, was this too sexy for Disney? And even if it was, did they need it at that time? Because there was a lot of things going on. So without any further ado, let's uh, go to my friend uh, Donald Duck. And what he said was, let's unspool it. And then he said something very profane. (laughs) So, the year, 1988, and it's been a bumpy road to Toontown because seven years ago, Disney bought the rights to a book called Who Censored Roger Rabbit by the writer Gary S. Wolf. Now, Gary said, and I quote, he considered the book to be unfilmable, but Disney worked on it for years and almost proved me right. The novel was a darker story than the one that you know now. Early on, Roger Rabbit gets shot and dies. But Disney was very serious about making a Roger Rabbit movie from 1981 to 1983. Robert Zemeckis came in and he said, I want to direct this. Now, he'd only directed like used cars at that point. And, you know, he had he had had basically two flops. Like, and I want to hold your hand. Right. And they're like, no, no, you're, you're not big enough. And Disney was so serious about the movie that they even did a TV program teasing how cool it was going to be back when the voice was still Paul Rubens. One big problem, though, was that a Roger Rabbit movie needed tons of celebrity cartoon cameos, especially from Bugs Bunny and the Warner Brothers crew. But when Roy Disney asked Warner Brothers if they could borrow their stars, Warner Brothers said no. So Disney eventually gave up around 1983 and Roger Rabbit was shelved for years. And then a few things happen. In 1984, months after Temple of Doom, Hollywood adds the PG-13. And then just months after that, the president of Paramount, who had taken a bet on the Indiana Jones franchise with Raiders when nobody else would, he resigns to become the CEO of Disney. His name? Michael Eisner. And sometime after that, Eisner takes a big meeting with Jeffrey Katzenberg and their animating team. And the guys on that animating team know that they might maybe lose their jobs if they can't come up with pitching them a hit. We have talked about this meeting, actually. We just talked about it a few episodes ago. One of the animators pitched doing a Little Mermaid movie, and Eisner was like, nah, that's too much like Splash. But somebody brings up this old Roger Rabbit idea. And Eisner and Katzenberg are like, huh, let's look into this. Eisner in particular says, you know, I'm this transplant to L.A., and I really miss the New York subway. I love that this Roger Rabbit story has a red car killing subplot. (laughs) I love that that's his in. Anyway, Eisner calls his buddy. From Temple of Doom, Steven Spielberg goes, Steven, would you make this movie? And Steven's like, hold on, let me make some calls. He calls WB and he's like, can we borrow Bugs Bunny? And WB is like, well, look, you know, we told Roy Disney to fuck off, but we love you, Steven. You can have him. And then Steven 
brings in his friend Zemeckis. Robert Zemeckis is like, wait a second, this script, I- I've been trying to make this movie for a long time, but I-, I wasn't big enough. But now that he's back from the future, he is big enough. And Disney, they need to be in the Spielberg business by like any means necessary because, you know, essentially they've just been floundering and semi-failing for years with like weird movies like Tron and the Black Hole. It's like, it's it's weird time at Disney, right? So now the budget, because this movie is big. And Spielberg's like, okay, we can make this for $50 million. And Disney says, eh, it'd be great if you could do it for 29. And Spielberg is like, okay, but at 29, Zemeckis and I get full creative control. And Disney goes, huh, deal. But we get the toys. And they say deal, and the rest is history. The final film, Who Framed Roger Rabbit? Nice title change. It is a noir set in 1947 L.A., The city is segregated between the humans and the toons. The toons live in Toontown. And these two groups of people might intermingle at work, but their lives are kept pretty separate. And you get the idea through the film that toons are a lower status. Enter a human detective named Eddie Valiant, that's Bob Hoskins, amazing, who agrees to spy on this sexy cartoon named Jessica Rabbit, who appears to be cheating on her husband, Roger Rabbit. And then people start dying. What looks like an open and shut case turns into this crooked conspiracy that leads back to a plan to destroy Toontown for a freeway. And our villain is Christopher Lloyd's truly terrifying Judge Doom, a toon disguised in human skin. Roger Rabbit does not cost $29 million. It costs $50 million. It is the most expensive (laughs) animated movie ever made at the time. But when it's released on June 22nd, 1988, it is a massive hit a critical darling. It's nominated for seven Oscars. It wins four of them. It ends the year as the number two box office grocer. Right behind that, like, obvious, obvious audience pleaser, Rain Man, uh, the movie with Tom Cruise. (laughs) Roger Rabbit is so successful that you might think, like the number one song on the radio on June 22nd, this Robert Rap, this Roger Rabbit thing, this collaboration between Spielberg and Katzenberg and Disney and this character that they have made a huge, 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 huge hit. This creative partnership is going to make tons of Roger Rabbit sequels and go on in the words of Rick Astley's number one song on the Billboard charts. I gotcha. I rickled you with oh, terrible AI versions oh, of Bugs no. Bunny and Bad Bunny. <laughs> oh, I, I'm now. I don't even want to do this podcast with you anymore. <laughs> That's terrible. Is that it says AI Bugs Bunny? Yeah, and some horrible glitchy Bad Bunny. Thank you to the people who made this, and I found it on the internet. Bless you. Bless you for ruining Paul's day. This movie to me was not one of my favorite movies <gasps> growing up. It just wasn't. It it felt to me like like a animated Chinatown. And when I was a kid in the 80s, the last thing I wanted to do was look at an animated Chinatown. I didn't want I didn't appreciate it. But going back, wow. Whoa. I am blown away by this film. Yeah, this is one of my first being in a theater memories. Who from Roger Rabbit? Summer Michigan, Port Huron, I'm with my aunts, and they take me to the mall. 
like I just remember this movie blowing my mind and it has never left my mind. It echoes through my mind like rotating songbirds when you really want stars. <laughs> I think the thing that really stuck out to me, because I did get the merchandising. I got went to, you know, wherever they had their happy meals. I had my special cups and and I had a very famous picture that went a, a little viral on the internet of me and Jessica Rabbit, where I did a hover hand uh, when I went to go visit uh, <laughs> MGM Studios, when it was MGM Studios in uh, Walt Disney World. Hey, I've never seen this photo. Can I see this photo? Uh, absolutely. Okay. I will <laughs> put it up online for everyone to see. But I guess the way I felt about Roger Rabbit was I enjoyed it, but I found it to be boring or have boring parts. And the best parts about it to me were the cameos, the fun moments where you see you know donald duck and daffy duck and when you see bugs bunny and mickey mouse like those were like the moments that kind of blew my mind or you saw dumbo interacting with humans it, it felt like this meta film and i don't think at that point in my life i even understood what a meta film was right like your introduction to a meta film is watching a man falling out of a cartoon skyscraper while mickey and bugs two people from wildly different worlds are making fun of him What's up, Doc? Jumping without a parachute? Kinda dangerous, ain't it? Yeah. Yeah, uh, you could get killed, huh? You guys got a spare? Uh, Bugs does. Yeah? Yeah, but I don't think you want it. I do, I do. Give it to me. Gee, uh, uh, better let him have it, Bugs. Okay, Doc. Whatever you say, here's the spare. Thank you. Ah, oh. oh, no! Ah! Oh, poor fella. <laughs> yeah, ain't I a stinker? By the way, now that I'm older, I can really see that the backstory of having Mickey and Bugs together is that Disney and Warner Brothers were like, okay, we're going to use our main characters. We're going to pool our resources on this, but they have to have equal like running time. And then Disney's like, but Bugs has to be the one who almost kills the hero. Negotiating back and forth. It's kind of like The Rock and Vin Diesel making a Fast and Furious movie, putting <laughs> Mickey and Bugs in this. That's well, also why like Daffy and Donald are together. And it's also why like Porky and Tinkerbell kind of share closing the movie. Legacy well, but, people got lawyers. But did you notice the one piece of urban legend in this movie? And there's a lot of different things that I remember hearing as a kid, like things that animators stuck into this movie. But this is a new one that I hadn't heard. That if you slow it down, Bugs Bunny flips off Mickey Mouse. No. He gives him the finger. And <gasps> I saw it. I'm like, you could make the case that that's what is happening. Uh, I believe it to be true. But the one thing that I remember as a kid that people talked about all the time, and we didn't really even talk about this in Little Mermaid, about like the dick castles and stuff like that. But Oh, right. And the dick priest. Yes. It's, I think it's just his forearm, people. But I do I love know. the idea that it's a dick priest. I do love the idea that Disney's animators are rebelling against Disney. We're a Disney film, but we're mad at you. We're going to draw the finger. The animating team was not getting along with Eisner making this movie when he realized how expensive it was. There was a lot of fighting, and they were very smartly in London, so people were not able to barge in at any time. Well, okay, but this is the thing that I saw, uh, which I watched, and I wanted to watch it so much to catch it. But Baby Herman fingers somebody as he walks off set like he puts his finger up a woman's skirt do you ever remember that i know the clip you're talking about right yes it's right after it's really in the intro like right after we kind of get yes. this introduction to the world where like we enter the cartoon there's herman and then they all cut and we get a glimpse of like who this baby really is cut 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 
What the hell was wrong with that take? Nothing with you, baby Herman. You were great. You were perfect. You were better than perfect. Just yeah, and then he brushes past that lady and she squeals. And now, you know, you can't really even see that anymore because it's been censored in the new Disney Plus version of it. So I guess there was some truth to baby Herman using his finger there. Okay, you know what I'm really embarrassed that I did as I was preparing for this in the middle of the night last night and going hard on a movie that I deeply love? Yes. The other rumor is that, you know, the scene where Jessica gets thrown out of the taxi cab? Yes. And just sort of skids across the ground? Apparently, there's a version in Germany they made for the Germans, where that slit in her dress is a little bit wider. And you see that she has a Barbie doll crotch. Oh. And I was like, no way, no way. But they actually do have screenshots online. And yeah, it's true. (laughs) Wow. So they just added in crotch shots. Yeah, they added a crotch shot. The people were horny, man. That's kind of the premise of the film. Bob Hoskins' character goes to investigate this woman who might be cheating on her husband. And he assumes Jessica Rabbit is going to be a rabbit. But when Jessica comes out for the first time, people lose their shit. Like, oh, yeah. like people are horny for this cartoon. And she's modeled off of, you know, I think a lot of 1940s stars. I definitely see Veronica Lake, or at least the oh, drawings hair, of Veronica. Oh, for yes. sure. Right? Like when we did Sullivan's Travels, that hair completely. Yes. There's even that illustration of Veronica Lake on the Sullivan's Travels poster. That, that's what I'm thinking She looks of. just yeah. like that. Yeah. And there's a little bit of like this Tex Avery cartoon about Red Riding Hood where she becomes like a sexy girl. Red Hot Riding Hood! Hey, Daddy. I want a diamond ring. I want some... When you look at those old clips of the Disney animators trying to put together a version of this movie, Jessica Rabbit looks much more like a character out of Frozen. And this character is much... Yeah, she has the big head and the pointy chin. She's not even dressed like this. She's kind of dressed the way like Dolores is, just in those 1940s suits. A hundred percent. And I think that that is something that helps Disney kind of get out of the rut that they're in. Because this is a movie that is constantly surprising people in what they're doing. And I think this scene where Bob Hoskins sees her for the first time is really the way that the audience saw a Disney movie for the first time. They're like, wait, what? Like they are leaning in because they're not expecting this type of humor, this type of sex. And this movie is full of double entendre. Yeah, let's just even hear her entrance. Picture... The leg entering first. You had plenty money, nineteen twenty-two. You let other women make a fool of you. Why don't you do right? Like some other man. I will say one funny thing about the original like making of Roger Rabbit thing from 1983 that we're talking about where she looked really different is even then when they drew her, they did start boobs first. They're like, and now we're going to draw Jessica boobs. And then they do the rest of it. That voice, though, by the way, who's singing that song is Spielberg's wife, Amy Irving, his wife at that time. Remember how we talked about in the Temple of Doom episode that Amy dumped him for Willie Nelson and then he was in a really bad mood and then like. The annoying blonde girl in Temple of Doom is named Willie, and then he winds up marrying the blonde girl. He does marry Kate Capshaw, 
but he actually gets back together with Amy Irving first, marries her during the making of Temple of Doom. And then they immediately divorce after she does the Jessica Rabbit voice. And then he gets back together with Kate. So Spielberg, hot to trot bachelor at this moment. Probably horny for a cartoon, if we can be honest. Probably (laughs) horny for this cartoon. Are you struggling to lower your bad LDL cholesterol, even though you may be taking a statin, swapping steaks for salads, and exercising while listening to this podcast? Ask your doctor if Repatha Evolocumab is right for you. With Repatha, you can dramatically reduce bad cholesterol and the risk of another heart attack while enjoying life, too, because you're human. And with convenient self-administration, you can take Repatha in the comfort of your own home. Do not take Repatha if you're allergic to it. Repatha can cause serious allergic reactions. Signs include trouble breathing or swallowing, or swelling of the face. Most common side effects include runny nose, sore throat, common cold symptoms, flu or flu-like symptoms, back pain, high blood sugar and redness, pain, or bruising at the injection site. Visit Repatha.com or call 1-844-REPATHA. Talk to your doctor today about Repatha. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the Internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. You know, there's so much to discuss, but why don't we just unpack Jessica Rabbit for a little bit more? Because she continues to be problematic, right? Have you visited Disneyland recently? I haven't, no. Okay. I I love Disneyland. I'm a big Disney person. And they have a Roger Rabbit ride. And for a long time, the Roger Rabbit ride was only in LA. It took over the worst ride of all time, which was like a Hollywood ride where like Regis Philbin was on the ride. Please Google that. Look at clips. Oh, nothing says kids love <laughs> Disney parks like Regis Philbin. On the ride, they've recently updated the ride and they've put a jacket on Jessica Rabbit. What? They literally are covering up Jessica Rabbit, put, like covering up her cleavage, making sure she cannot be uh, gawked at by young, horny kids that uh, are are on this ride. I mean, What's look. What's wrong with letting young kids have a sexual awakening? What, That's why what I want. Morality, please. Now I have to have that on the Little Nemo ride. And now I don't know why I'm so sexually attracted to shellfish. But I mean... <laughs> the... I have a theory. <laughs> Wait, so, but... That's not the only change they made. They also had this moment in the ride. And, you know, the ride is this, you're in Benny the Cab and you're going through and kind of highlighting moments of the film. And there was a scene where Jessica's in the trunk of the car, which she is in the trunk of the car in the movie. But they took her out of the trunk of the car. They didn't want her to be a damsel in distress. Uh, They just replaced her with a bunch of dip. You know, that, that thing that erases the cartoons. It's really weird. They retconned the whole ride to make Jessica Rabbit Eddie Valiant. That's so weird. Why can they not be comfortable with the character they created? A character who has to defend herself in her own movie. You've got the wrong idea about me, Mr. Valiant. I'm a pawn in this, just like Roger. Can you help me find him? 
Just name your price, and I'll pay it. Yeah, I bet you would. You gotta have the rabbit to make the scam work. No, 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 I love my husband. You've got me all wrong. You don't know how hard it is being a woman looking the way I do. Yeah, well, you don't know how hard it is being a man looking at a woman looking the way you do. I'm not bad. I'm just drawn that way. I guess even at the time, they weren't comfortable with it. I mean, I think even at the time, Eisner was like, yo, this can't be a Disney movie. No way. We really have to release this under Touchstone Pictures to make it clear that this is a little bit more adult. By the way, we've had a big conversation about like ratings and PG and PG-13. Roger Rabbit is PG. Congrats, Roger Rabbit. I love that for you. You are covered in stories about alcoholism and people drinking and murder and two of the most terrifying traumatic scenes I've ever seen in my life that still upset me to this day. PG, I'm very proud of you. Are you referencing the scene where Christopher Lloyd's character dips just a sweet shoe into the dip? Oh, you mean this one right here? Remember how I always thought there wasn't a way to kill a tune? Well, Doom found the way. Turpentine, acetone, benzene. He calls it the dip. I'll catch the rabbit, Mr. Valiant. Then I'll try him, convict him, and execute him. I mean, a thing where the worst part is the squeak, I thought. But when you really, really, really rewatch it, the worst part is that that dipshoot just wants to be loved. And as it's getting killed, it starts looking up at, at Judge Doom and it's blinking and it looks so sad, like it's going to cry. But you know what, Amy? That dip shoe does have a silver lining because that is the voice of Nancy Cartwright, a.k.a. Bart Simpson. And this was recorded before she started recording Bart's voice. And this was kind of her breakthrough. This is kind of her first on-camera cartoon moment that is very memorable. Uh, But that was her voice. And now she became Bart. So Bart is the shoe. Bart lives much longer than that shoe ever did. I mean, if you don't think I pulled a clip of Nancy Cartwright as Bart talking about shoes, we are not celebrating five years together, (laughs) because here it is. Uh, What do we need shirt shoes for? Jesus wore sandals. Well, maybe if he had better arch support, they wouldn't have caught him. Kudos to Cartwright, man. That shoe could have only come from a truly gifted artist. I mean, it really makes you feel like you're saying it really, it connects you there. And I think what we're talking about is desperation on Disney. The ability to let them be kind of manipulated into places they didn't want to go. And by a bunch of people who are coming off of tremendous success. Obviously, Spielberg, we already talked about his success and wanting to do whatever he wanted to do with Temple of Doom. But we're now talking about Zemeckis coming off of Back to the Future. So they had these moments, these opportunities to really push Disney when they are their weakest. And that's why we have a lead character who's an alcoholic. All these reasons why I don't like this as a kid's movie is why I love this as an adult. But Bob Hoskins is a straight-up alcoholic, and it's not played for laughs. It's played relatively seriously. I mean, it's played in the 1940s way of a a hard-boiled, hard-drinking detective, but it also is a little sadder. I mean, when he sees that bottle of liquor in the president of Maroon Cartoon's office, like he's licking his lips to get it. 
Yeah, it's really heavy. Like when you watch this film, it I find it really striking that this has such a human soul to it, honestly. Like such a sadness in the Bob Harskins character that I really think only he could have done. I mean, they talked about this being like a Harrison Ford movie, like he would star in that role. But he was too expensive. Too expensive. And I kind of think it would be too Blade Runner-y. And I don't think he could live in this world. I mean, I think to me, like the secret of Bob Hoskins is he's sort of playing this like he's a cartoon. He sort of looks like a cartoon. Yes. You know, he's he has a, a cartoon shape. He's not like, I'm a lean leading man in the Harrison Ford model. You know, you can see things bouncing off of him. He has proportions that make him interesting. Like, he looks like he fits in this world and he acts like he fits in this world. He's not playing a straight man. He's playing like an ultra uber, almost cartoonish straight man, but yet with this like super deep human sadness. Well, I also think, and maybe I'm being too cruel here, but I think Bob Hoskins has had problems hiding his accent. Uh, we talk about that a lot on how did this get made when we talked about the <laughs> Super Mario Brothers movie. But here, that little mix of whatever that was gives him a 1940s accent that doesn't feel really put on or performative, I guess. There's something about his voice in this movie that you can still hear a little bit of that British accent as he's speaking. Yeah, it turns into this growl, right? Yeah. And he also is a person who... You know, sort of like this character, we get this little glimpse of who Eddie Valiant really was with his brother, that he grew up in like a circus family. He was the cut up at the police academy. He and his brother are always cracking jokes. All of this information that the movie just tells us really seamlessly by panning over his desk, like the intense visual information given to us in this film. Amazing. But Bob Hoskins has a little bit of that background in his life, too. He also worked as a fire breather. He was a fire breather in real life. So he can wow. play a guy who used to live in the circus. So he was really appropriately cast. I, I think that Bob Hoskins is great in this film. But one of the things that you'll see time and time again when you do research of this film online is not about Harrison Ford, but it's about Bill Murray. Bill Murray regrets not doing this movie because Bill Murray has a system. When you want him to do a movie, you leave a message for him on his voicemail. He will get back to you when he gets back to you. He missed the call for Roger Rabbit, and he didn't hear it until it was too late. And a lot of people go, well, that this movie would have been so much better or could have been so much better with Bill Murray. And I have to say, as a giant Bill Murray in the 80s comedy fan, I disagree. I disagree because the combination of an American audience not being ultra familiar with Bob Hoskins really helps here. And also, he's not playing it for laughs. I, I think it really is a smart move that it wasn't a giant, giant star. No, you're right. And you're right. He's not playing it for laughs. Like, you could go one of two really wrong ways with this. Like, you could go so not for laughs that it doesn't work. Like, I think... Bob Hoskins always talked about how he thought his big competition for the role was Paul Newman, that they were also trying to go for Paul Newman, mm, but that Paul Newman would have done it like probably straight Bogart right? in that this character, he couldn't be straight Bogart. He had to be weird, but he couldn't be Bill Murray weird. Like something about Bill Murray feels like he almost has too much of the same silhouette even of Roger Rabbit, you know, kind of lanky, kind of droopy. There's this visual contrast 
with Bob and Roger Rabbit that I think makes them such a dynamic duo. It's kind of like Abbott and Costello. And I mean, that even kind of goes to their personalities. Like Eddie is this human, but he has this cartoon anger to him. And Roger is a rabbit, a cartoon rabbit, but he has this deep capacity to love, to be vulnerable in love that Eddie has closed off. So they're just bouncing back and forth off each other, these two opposites. That really makes the end of the film work. When when Eddie Valiant has to perform like a cartoon to distract and, and save the day at the end, that turn there is way more organic or interesting because he hasn't shown us any of that. I think it would have worked with Paul Newman too, but this is... I don't know. Bob Hoskins feels of the 1940s in a way, but I guess I don't know. I, I go back and forth. I just think coming in with not that much baggage is really good. And and yes, I don't want to like not give him his props. Obviously, this uh, movie uh, Mona Lisa, which was like this 1986 British neo-noir. It was a crime film about like an ex-convict who becomes, you know, entangled into the world of sex work. Uh, it was written by Neil Jordan, and he had gotten so much praise for that. But I still don't think yeah. that that was and like connecting with an American. And he's in the TV miniseries of the movie that would become my favorite movie, which is Pennies from Heaven. Which oh, makes wow. me think maybe Steve Martin could have done this, but I'm glad it was Bob Hoskins. Again, I think it was really good casting. And as we're talking about the three big stars, let's talk about Roger Rabbit. Because besides Roger Rabbit's voice in this, let's talk about what Roger Rabbit looks like. You just described him a little bit. He kind of has the character design of Warner Brothers, like the Looney Tunes, and the personality and the sense of humor of like Tex Avery. And he's got like a face of a Looney Tunes character. His torso is like a Disney hero. And he's got the Mickey gloves. Yeah. And he's got the overalls, which are kind of like goofy uh, and a bow tie, which is like Porky Pig. So he really is this interesting mashup. Frankenstein. Yeah. Yeah. He's like the unpredictability of Bugs Bunny, but also the innate goodness of a Mickey. It's everything. And you can't neglect that part of that personality is Charles Fleischer, who is the voice of Roger Rabbit, a man who had Zemeckis build him a suit of Roger Rabbit that he would sit in on stage to do the lines of Roger Rabbit while Bob Hoskins was there. Bob Hoskins, I think, thought he was absolutely mental, did not want to talk to him. <laughs> but Charles Fleischer really believed in in kind of embodying this character and being on set with this character, I think, was important. Totally. I mean, here's Charles even just trying to explain why he needed to do this to Jay Leno. Wait, now let me ask you. You know, I saw you at the Improv, uh, I guess about six months ago. You said, oh, I got this thing. I'm doing this movie, Roger Rabbit. I'm wearing a costume all day. And then the movie comes out and you're, you're doing a voice. Why Why would you, were you wearing a costume? Well, I had to approach it not like a voice. I approached it like any acting part, and it was necessary to wear a costume for that reason. So wait, Bob wait. Hoskins, his reaction was the same as yours. First day, I come on a set with a uh, rabbit. What you tell me? Yeah, you're mine. You're off camera. What are you wearing a rabbit suit for? You're off camera. <laughs> but two weeks later, he thanked me because what we had to do was create a new style of acting. He had to act with empty space where Roger would be drawn. Oh, I see. I stood off camera wearing Roger's suit, just like he did, and watching whenever Bob did. So if he lifted Roger's ears, I'd have to react to that. So we created a new acting style. A new acting style. I think that that is actually really important. Uh, and when you look at the pictures of him in this costume, it is, it's silly. I mean, it's... Ears. <laughs> ears, yeah, ears on his head. He's in these overalls. But I think that... It's important because 
the dynamic of these two. There, it's it has a 1940s style to the dialogue, and if you don't have someone there, or you're just doing it in post, you're not going to be able to get that rat-a-tat-tat kind of energy. Um, so I do believe that like Charles Fleischer, while in this costume, is doing something really important that makes Bob Hoskins even better. I mean, I would argue the same thing that Samantha Morton did uh, for Joaquin Phoenix and her, you know, to have that real voice there. I know they added Scarlett Johansson after, but you need that real connection. You need that acting. And I feel like this movie pops because of this. Now, Disney has done movies in the past where they mixed live action and animation, but this was something that felt truly kinetic. You know, the when you look at this movie a light fixture uh, will swing back and forth. And as the light swings away from Roger Rabbit, he goes dark. And as the light comes on him, he is light. That's like next level animation there. So they're doing that on an animation front. He's there on set. Like they really are trying to make this movie feel like something that you've never, ever seen before. And, and you, when we haven't. No, like I forget that I'm watching a movie with cartoons, weirdly. Yes. Because of how good things like the lighting are, because it's so subtle, because you just really, really, really quickly get used to seeing cartoons interact with three dimensional things with Roger Rabbit smashing plates over his head. And those are definitely real plates. And you're like, well, I guess this is real. Like in the very back of your lizard brain, you're like, OK, this is happening. You know, you, you don't consciously even decide. You just decide. And I think when it's done well, it's not a gimmick, right? It feels organic. And I had that same feeling recently, and this is a spoiler alert for the upcoming Spider-Man, but when I saw Spider-Man across the universe and all of a sudden there were live action characters interacting with a cartoon world, they all exist in the same world. It kind of blew out to me the idea of what a multiverse was. And that's what this movie kind of feels like too. It, it does push the limits of what we even can conceive in a world, there is a Toontown. It reacts on a whole different level. Like you don't, we can kind of just go into it and come out of it. It's not just about tunes being real in our world. It's about us going into their world and also interacting with the weird physics that they have. Yeah, becoming part of their world the way he does, being with with Eddie being able to be squashed, you know, and to fall forever, and like really showing us. I guess like the reality of it, like they treat Toontown as though it is a different reality and you believe it. And it's not even just that like this is technology that, you know, couldn't have existed before or after. You know, this is something people have been trying to do forever. Like even just the year before at the Oscars, Tom Hanks had to give out an award with Bugs Bunny on stage. Watch out, Doc. Well, Bugs, we're announcing the nominees for Best Achievement in an animated short film. I thought I was going to present the award for Best Actress. Well, look, Bugs, people expect a guy like you to give out this kind of award, so let's just defer to the Academy. Well, uh, all right. It's going to be a long night. The nominations for achievement in an animated short film are... And, you know, it's fine, but it doesn't look like this. It doesn't have that attention to detail. And even the films that came after this, like Cool World, do not have the attention to detail. And Although Cool World at least just take... It takes the Jessica Rabbit thing a step further and it's like, yo, you think cartoon Kim Basinger is hot? She's so hot. But if you have sex with her, she's going to turn into a human and you can't have that. And also, for some reason, I'm Brad Pitt giving you this information. And yes, I had to pull a clip from Cool World because obviously. 
Noids do not have sex with doodles. <laughs> right? Noids do not have sex with doodles. It's the oldest law in cool world. I've never had to enforce it, but you cross that line, and I'll slap you around and make you piss like a puppy. I, you know, I've never seen Cool World. Oh, because, we did a whole How Did This Get oh, Made on man. it. You can, again, you can listen to that one in uh, in our archives there as well. It sucks. It sucks. It sucks. In, in so many ways. It just goes to show you what they're doing here is beyond a gimmick. Hey, everybody. It's Rob Lowe here. If you haven't heard, I have a podcast that's called Literally with Rob Lowe. And basically, it's conversations I've had that really make you feel like you're pulling up a chair at an intimate dinner between myself and people that I admire, like Aaron Sorkin or Tiffany Haddish, Demi Moore, Chris Pratt, Michael J. Fox. There are new episodes out every Thursday. So subscribe, please, and listen wherever you get your podcasts. Why Roger Rabbit works ultimately is it's a noir. It is Chinatown, right? It is this true story that I feel like cartoons can exist in this world. It doesn't feel like it's super modern. So we don't, you know, there's, there's something I think a little old fashioned with cartoons in the original book that this was based on. And I didn't realize it was based on a book until I was doing my research. It was about like comic strip characters and comic strip characters that some had the ability to actually have a voice and some could only speak in panels like, uh, like, like little word bubbles. Yeah. There's a whole thing in the book. I actually just started reading it. I'm like halfway through where people like when a cartoon speaks, you see their words or like when Roger Rabbit gets shot very early on, very early on, this is not a spoiler. They're able to pull up his corpse and see his last words in the crumpled bubble underneath him. And it's like getting crispy and thin, like it's disintegrating. Well, and this whole thing, the the Roger Rabbit book, Who Censored Roger Rabbit, written by Gary K. Wolf. It's very, very different, like you said. And what he decided to do was change it um, when this movie comes out. And, and he like undid Roger Rabbit's death. He treated it like it was a... Um, like, oh, it was just a dream. So he continues to write Roger Rabbit books. As a matter of fact, a, a new one just came out in 2022 called Jessica Rabbit. I don't know how to pronounce it, but X serious. It's like serious with an X instead of an S. Whoa. I have yeah, no and, idea how you pronounce yeah, that. Yeah, I don't know either. And I mean, and then in 2013, he re- released a, a book called Who Whacked Roger Rabbit. Now, I don't want to speak ill on these books, but from what I've read and what I understand, they are diminishing returns. Well, yeah. I mean, it's interesting. Like when Gary talks about his inspiration to even make the first Roger Rabbit, it came from just watching TV. He was like, I was just watching commercials. And I thought, isn't it funny in serial commercials that cartoons just talk to human kids like it's no big deal? You know, like (laughs) this one. 8 a.m. I had fruit flavors on my mind and tricks in my sights. This disguise was sure to get some. A detective. How's tricks, sweetheart? Uh, great. Tricks is part of this good, nutritious breakfast. Well, I'll need this for evidence. Play it, Sam. Tricks has root taste I like. There's lemon, there's orange in every bite. Like, wow! The rabbit! Silly rabbit. Tricks are for kids. <laughs> He's cool. <laughs> And so he just took that idea and then 
ran with it. And the book is actually, I think, the first one's really well written. But he right. keeps getting asked, you know, when are they going to do a sequel? When are they going to do a sequel? He and Zemeckis just keep kind of saying the same thing. Like, in Zemeckis's words, quote, the current corporate Disney culture has no interest in Roger, and they certainly don't like Jessica at all. Well, but also, there was a sequel, a scrap sequel, that took place during World War II. And Spielberg said, I don't want to do it. I can't make fun of Nazis after I made Schindler's List, so we can't do it. And then they went back and, like, well, what if we do, like, an origin story? Uh, you know, they they even talked about, like, taking an old screwball movie um, that was based, uh, you know, on a classic film. And they said, you know, why don't we make that, like, the center of a new film? But it just, nothing really takes off. And I think the reason why, I don't know if this should be sequelized. I think you should use the technology, but tell a different story. But there yeah, is exactly. also something. Everybody got their cameo. You can't surprise us. With Bugs Bunny and Mickey Mouse twice. And I guess, you know, we got a sequel this year with Chippendale Rescue Rangers. We talked about that on the show a couple episodes back about how that was kind of the modern day, you know, reimagining of Roger Rabbit. I think that that took the torch. It, it said, hey, remember these characters that we grew up with in the 80s, you know, Rescue Rangers. We're going to bring them into the 2000s. I guess they're in the 90s, actually. And we're going to bring them into the 2000s and we're going to have them interact with this. And I thought that movie was great and really fun. And they, you know, they had Muppets and well, not Muppets because they wouldn't allow themselves to be in the movie, but they had a lot of these mixed media. And I think that that may be the way to do it. Like, why don't we just find ways to... I guess, bend the multiverse a little bit going back to the Spider-Man film. It's like we can continue to work within this without having to see these same characters. Yeah, exactly. It's not the characters necessarily. It's like the whole technique. It's the whole ambition. And, and like, I love going back and just watching even the footage of how they made this. You, this film cost, I think, $250,000 a minute. <laughs> like, wow. It took... 82,080 frames of hand-painted animation to make it done. And I never really thought before, like, how actually did they specifically do things like the plates, like plates smashing on Robert's head? And it's like they had to build robot hands and like robot things everywhere that smashed things, that tugged on Bob Hoskins, that made papers explode, you know, wires on bicycles. They took a lot of the sets and they had to build them 10 feet above the land so that you could have 30 puppeteers underneath, like, running around. They basically did it all with tactile things and then added animation over it. Like, they even had rubber stand-ins for, for Roger, for the weasels. So they're fighting with things, grappling with things, so that they had eye lines. I mean, it feels like, from my understanding, they had to do all of these scenes two or three times, like, rehearse with rubber, I guess. And then do it again with just invisibleness and animatronics and puppets, like puppeted guns, you know, people like holding guns on wires. We had a life-size model or, or puppet of every character created that could be placed in, its, in the set and actually dance around and mimic the actions of the way Bob described them and the way that the character was supposed to act. And by the way, let's just be clear here. This movie broke Bob Hoskins. Like, broke him. <laughs> he took a year off. He was like, I, 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 I can't, I can't do it. I, I, I don't even, he just didn't know what was real anymore, you know, because he is essentially running around reacting to nothing. Like, and the fact that he's just like a serious artist. Like when you watch clips of him just acting on the blue screen, like there's a little montage of like the real scene and then him doing it on blue screen. 
you just get hit over the head with what an incredible mime he is. He is he is in the blue screen. Like he is living in the blue screen. It doesn't feel like he's standing in front of blue screen with a buddy and saying, the world's going to die. Like he is reacting and so expressive and getting thrown around and, you know, pulling himself even. I mean, he said that one of the things that really inspired him is that his three-year-old daughter, she was three at the time, she had these two invisible friends. And so he just watched her talk to her invisible friends. And then he summoned this ability to make himself see invisible friends. His quote is exactly, quote, I had to learn to hallucinate. And he started seeing rabbits everywhere. Like he would make himself see Roger to be in the moment. I, I love that. And I feel like you get that. And now we are working in this world where we're always working with CGI and characters are always interacting. But I think the technology has definitely improved. You know, you have somebody like, you know, Sean Gunn, James Gunn's brother, playing Rocket Raccoon, you know, being on the ground, doing the lines with the cast. So they actually have something tactile and a real voice to react to. Or you have like somebody like Steve Agee, who played King Shark in Suicide Squad, you know, wearing this contraption. So there's actually eye lines and things. So we've improved it. But I think we got to give... Uh, you know, we have to give our flowers to what was going on here because this was never done before in a way that it was done. Uh, And you have to, I guess, go insane. You have to believe this world. And I think that Bob Hoskins here really doesn't get the credit in a weird way. I don't think he does because watching this now, I'm like, this is a best actor performance. It really, really is. And this is a movie that is a technical marvel. I mean, I don't know if it still is true to this moment, but at the time, it's had the longest credit sequence of any movie, six and a half minutes, because of all the animators that they employed. You know, now we're seeing long credits all the time, but that, to me, just speaks the volumes of, like, the technical achievements, I think, overshadowed why those things actually worked, which was the directing and the acting. And when you look at it, they they won three Academy Awards, Best Film Editing, Best Sound Effects Editing, and Best Visual Effects. And then they invented a fourth Oscar just to give them one, another yes, one. Yes, which was Special Achievement Academy Award for Animation Direction, which should have been a Best Picture nomination, right? It should have been a Best Picture nomination. Like, what is that? Best Animation Direction. Now, Yeah, why are they like, you get siloed over here? Now, the, we are doing not a full deep dive on how amazing this animation process was. I mean, it really, it really was something that is absolutely stunning because this Canadian animator, Richard Williams, he supervised all the animation sequences, right? And he was like, I don't like Disney. I don't want Disney to be involved. And like you said, they went overseas. They went to Elstree Studio in England to be like, I want to be here. And um, he basically was able to work unencumbered by being over there. And I think that like his foresight to get out of Disney was really smart. I think it really was. It kind of made me think of Wonka in a way. Like a movie made just far enough away from from studio notes that you don't have to hear them every single day. And I mean, there are all these fights, of course. Like basically Eisner would keep trying to give them notes and they would keep ignoring his notes. A lot of his notes were like, Jessica's way too fucking sexy. And they would just be like, whatever, and keep going. Ed Katzenberg is sort of stuck in the middle being like, I don't know what to tell you, bro. I quietly low key just being like, let's trust Spielberg to do what Spielberg does. 
But yeah, like they were mad. There were, I think, a lot of like aggro Disney dick measuring contests. And I'll just say dick measuring contests that we definitely know that Herman the baby would have lost. Hey, stop. Why don't you run downstairs and get me a racing form? Oh, okay, okay, I'm going. A ladies' man, huh? My problem is I got a 50-year-old lust and a three-year-old dinky. Yeah, must be tough. By the way, Amy, that is one of the two lines from the book. They only use two lines from the book. Uh, I'm not bad, I'm just drawn that way. And that line that you just played. They did, although they changed the age a little bit. He's still a three-year-old dinky, but I think they make him younger too in the book. I think he's like 36. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) But you know what I think in watching this movie, the movie starts off with this, you know, Roger Rabbit short. And that's where I'm surprised that they can continue to kind of expand the character more Roger Rabbit shorts at least like let's because those are very Tex Avery like and you don't have to go through the whole process because Roger Rabbit lives in a world where he can just be animated but it just felt like they did like one or two of them they put it before another Disney movie and they're fine I remember the one I think that was before Honey I Shrunk the Kids yes yeah I remember that being like oh it's Roger and being so excited Here's what I'm going to say about all this stuff. I don't think we care about Roger Rabbit. I don't think we want to go see Roger Rabbit in the trail mix up or Roger Rabbit and Roller Coaster Rabbit because I don't think that Roger Rabbit's an interesting like character. I think he's great in the movie and I think it works for the movie, but I don't know if I need to see more of him. You know what I'm saying? Well, you know, I do know exactly what you're saying because I had a thought similar to that watching this movie, watching that short, actually. Yeah. I was like, oh, the Roger who's in this early short running around and trying to save baby Herman from killing himself isn't really that much different than the Roger off screen. Right. You know, Herman has this big change, but Roger's kind of like Rodney Dangerfield. He's playing the same comic role no matter where he is. He's almost not acting. He's sort of like showing up like it's me and I'm kind of playing myself. And watching this, I was realizing, oh, Roger's not even a star. No. I mean, the fact that he can't summon stars is kind of, I think, even a hint. He is sort of on the way out. He's not that hip anymore. You know, I I think watching this movie, I was like, Roger's a star and this is about Hollywood and Roger must be the biggest star. But there's actually no evidence for that in the movie at all. He's, you know, two bits disposable in this world. I think what we're saying is Roger Rabbit isn't funny. Roger Rabbit is a human being. Like, I want to watch the Roger Rabbit reality show. I don't want to go see a Roger Rabbit movie where he's oh starring God, in a movie. Oh, my God, like he's Flavor Flav. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I'm open. I'm open. I love this idea that he's more interesting off screen than he is on screen. Yeah. I kind of get that. And, you know, he does this really, I think, beautiful thing in the film, which is he's this person giving a defense of humor. Even though we might not think he's that funny. Like, all of his jokes are actually kind of dumb. He's, like, singing songs and making rhymes and being, like, yelling yelling a lot, I guess. Uh, I don't, yeah, I don't find his jokes funny. But then he has that moment where he gives a speech to Eddie about the importance of humor and how if you make people laugh, you can earn their trust, that they'll have your back, that they'll, like, defend you. Even, like, the cranky drunks in the bar will support Roger, will hide out for it, will help him hide out because he made them laugh. And I just realized he gives this whole big speech, this one right here, standing on a soapbox. You don't understand. Those people needed to laugh. Yeah, and when they done laughing, they'll call the cops. That guy Angelo would rat on you for a nickel. Not Angelo. He'd never turn me in. Why? Because you made him laugh. That's right. 
A lift can be a very powerful thing. Why, sometimes in life, it's the only weapon we have. And you know what? He's right. Because as soon as he stops talking, Judge Doom comes in and his whole theory about will people have your back if you make them laugh, absolutely put to the test. And he's right. He is right. Even the cranks, they make that Harvey joke. Oh, the Harvey joke. I didn't get that Harvey joke when I was a kid. But now, you know, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know Harvey, right? Like Harvey is this movie with um, from Jimmy Stewart. It started as right. like a play on Broadway. Then it became like a movie about a guy like these guys, spends a lot of time in bars, is a big drunk. His whole thing, I guess, is like he's sort of a, I'm going to say this with some ignorance because I couldn't tolerate more than one episode of the show, a Ted Lasso-y guy who right. like talks to his invisible rabbit and makes everybody love him. Here's a clip of Harvey. Well, anyway, I was walking down along the street and I, I heard this voice saying, good evening, Mr. Dowd. Well, I, I turned around and here was this big six foot rabbit leaning up against a lamppost. I, I thought nothing of that because when you've lived in the town as long as I've lived in this one, you get used to the fact that everybody knows your name. You know, Paul, since we've been doing this show for five years, mm-hmm. you definitely know that I tried my hardest to come up with some sort of phrase that connects Jimmy Stewart's very big, you know, Member, to yeah. his like very big six foot three invisible rabbit. Right. I couldn't come up with one and I'm so mad at myself. I just would think maybe like Jimmy Stewart's holding a very long rabbit's foot. Like the, you know, like how you have a rabbit's <laughs> foot a on rabbit's a, foot in his yeah. pocket. <laughs> <laughs> just a very, uh, just, oh, that image is, that's, no, it's not a rabbit's foot. That's what he always says. Oh, that lucky rabbit's foot? No. Oh, he's got a real lucky rabbit's foot. <laughs> Actually, wait, my boyfriend and I went on like a weird tear two months ago being like, whatever happened to rabbit's feet? Because mm-hmm. remember when we were little? Like, yeah, all the time. Every grocery store exit had like a little thing where you could pay 50 cents and get a rabbit's foot. And I haven't seen one in forever. And those were definitely real rabbit's feet. Like I remember buying one that had claws. But now when you look around for it, I think they only have ones that are sort of artificial puffs shaped like rabbits. And I think at some point there was a shift in the rabbit industry. And I really want to understand what happened where for some reason we had a lot of dead rabbits and rabbit's feet. And now we don't, or maybe we thought it was cruel. It It is cruel. It's crazy. I don't know why this was even a thing ever to buy severed rabbit's feet that were dyed pink and purple. Well, it brought you luck, right? That's the whole idea. It was normally good for gamblers. Yeah, but it was for sold for children too. And it's so weird that it was normal. Think about that. What if we were walking on a dog's feet in our pockets? It's weird how normal that was in the 80s. I know. It really was a thing. I remember loving my little rabbit's foot. I mean, it was an American, not just an American phenomenon either, right? It was like all throughout the world. I mean, where it all came from, I think, was this idea that like during the Middle Ages, executions in the street were really popular and victims' corpses <laughs> would hang in the streets to deter others, you know, from committing crimes. Oh, yeah. And Jessica and a, Rabbit, if she wasn't wearing, you know, her, her covering trench coat. Oh, and, you know, in a practice between the these hanging bodies was like people would cut off the left hands and pickled for luck. And that that became the way for the rabbit's foot. Oh, wait, you were telling a serious story. I thought you were making a joke about life in the 80s for some reason. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, no, no. Yeah, that was really interesting. And also, like, there's a lot of old pictures of, like, Jesus and white, white rabbits are around him. And Okay, I get the idea. I get the idea. But, like, where did the actual rabbit's feet all come from? Oh, the chances are your rabbit's foot is not real. The ones that we've had, like they're, you know, if they feel like their bones are buried in fur, it's just 
that's a you know that's a product. It's a, no, it's, they were real. They were. I don't know how real they were. I don't think I'm being crazy on this. I think they were real, and I think now they're not. But I think they were real. I mean, look, I'm looking on a lot of websites, and they're saying that the, that if you wanted a real rabbit's foot, you'd have to cut it off in a very specific way. All right, because it it have to be his left hind foot, luckier than the right, uh, and that they would have to be cut off during a full moon, a new moon, or Friday the Thirteenth. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, and people say you have to cut it off when the rabbit is still alive, alive, or you have to you kill the rabbit by shooting it with a silver bullet. I mean, when I go on the road, I see them in truck stops. But I think those are fake feet. I think they were. Amy, real, they're, and all now I think they're, fake. No, they're all fake feet. No, I think they're real. All right. Well, I'll let I'll let everybody correct us later. Um, <laughs> let's just talk for uh, just a couple minutes about Christopher Lloyd and this character, a character that is extremely creepy. One of the amazing things I learned after watching this movie is that Christopher Lloyd never blinks uh, in this film, a choice that Zemeckis kind of shouted out to him and he kept. Um, But he was a last minute choice because it was originally going to be Tim Curry. I mean, again, this is a movie great, full of what ifs, but they thought Tim Curry was too scary. Um, And they got Christopher Lloyd. And I think this was like one of Christopher Lloyd's best performances as well. I mean, it's a very different Christopher Lloyd performance. Well, yeah. One of the things I thought that I want to ask you about is knowing that he is a tune, which we know that he is a tune. Mm-hmm. When you rewatch the movie, can you tell that he's a tune? Like, does it, 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 does it ruin anything knowing that he's a tune? Is it one of those magic tricks where once you know he's a tune, it doesn't work? Like, can you watch this performance knowing he's a tune? I had forgotten. Really? You forgot? I forgot. You're telling me you forgot about his living scream while he gets steamrollered? You're telling me you forgot about the second most terrifying and traumatic scene in this movie? By the way, Amy, I not only have a hover hand of me and Jessica Rabbit, I have a me underneath uh, a steamroller. And I forgot. <laughs> I have so many pictures from this. I want to see that one too. I think it's levels, right? This movie has a lot of different levels. And it, he feels not from the 40s. He doesn't feel uh, too mustache twirly. He's an intimidating, scary character. This is like a legendarily scary character who kills multiple, I mean, they're tunes, but they're still killing Right on screen. I mean, it's it's. I would put this up next to any uh, you know action movie bad guy. Yeah, like Gary Wolf said that he was told that theater owners complained because they had to keep mopping theaters after the shows because so many kids were peeing their pants at how scary Christopher Ew, Lloyd was. Oh God. Well, you know, science. I guess that's what happened. But it's true. Like thinking about it, when you really look at him, he's not blinking. The skin on his face is barely moving. And then really above it all, he's got those artificial white teeth, right? Right. These giant, giant fake teeth that I don't think I registered as fake until I really was like, am I buying him as a as a cartoon in, in human skin? It's one of those things that comes together all at the end. You know, this movie does feel, if I'm going to give it any kind of bigger note, rushed at the end. Like that final sequence, like we're in that warehouse for a long period of time at the end of the film. And we're getting every plot 
tied up and not only are we tying up plots we're connecting back to eddie's previous you know existence like everything is just kind of jammed into the end i'm not saying it doesn't work it's just like convenient and the movie does exist in one location for a very long time well yeah and it can't think of anything to do with roger and jessica besides it just keeps threatening them with dip like four right different yeah times. you're still hanging there oh no it's it's back on again you know and i think that there is this you know, this big plot that, again, kind of makes sense. Like he's building a freeway through Toontown to get rich because he's going to like put a lot of truck stops on that freeway. I, I didn't really understand where the money was coming there. I guess he just own the land. How big is the land? I don't I don't know. I don't know. Well, yeah. I mean, this is based in some reality, you know, that this like whole cloverleaf industry thing. I mean, the backstory here is that, you know, in the 40s and 50s, 25 cities across America had like really, really good transit systems like L.A. L.A. had actually, I think, the biggest electric railway system in the world. But also like St. Louis, Baltimore, these 25 cities got their electric streetcars bought out by this one company. This one company ended up turning all of their streetcars into buses. And the investors in this one company uh, that was called National City Lines were General Motors, Phillips Petroleum, Standard Oil, Firestone Tire, Mack Trucks, all these automobile companies who basically did what I think the problem of the American economy is right now. You know, giant hidden companies and private equity acquiring and destroying industries. Happened to journalism, happening to everything. But that is what happened here. It actually is true. There's so many Chinatown references in this movie, but I guess the most obvious is that Judge Doom's company is called uh, Cloverleaf, which was the unproduced sequel to Chinatown. I think as a kid, my memory of this movie was like, a lot of stuff happens, and then suddenly it's about freeways. And I always remember feeling kind of confused. But watching this again, I'm like, oh, no, 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 no. This has been here absolutely from the beginning. Like, not even just the the loud moments, like when you first see Bob Hoskins try to like get on a red car, but he's too broke to get on the red car, so he has to hitch a ride, and the kids start heckling him. Hey, mister, ain't you got a car? Who needs a car in L.A.? We got the best public transportation system in the world. Immediately after that, he goes to a depot where just like red car people hang out. And like not only are there red cars everywhere, there's like people who are sitting there who are fired, passed out drunk because they were red car workers who've been fired by Cloverleaf. Watch with Earl. Laid off. A new outfit bought the red car. Some big company called Cloverleaf. No kidding. They bought the red car? Yeah, put the poor guy on two weeks notice. Cutbacks, they said. Here's to the pencil pushers. May they all get lead poisoning, huh? You know, throughout this movie, really almost in every outdoor scene, there's a red car in the background, there's trains going by, there's the noise of trains. It's like this rumble throughout the entire film that you're just aware of almost without being aware of. I noticed that as well. And again, as adults, we're just more used to the idea of that land grabs, like that kind of villainy is relatable. We get that more as kids. I don't know why land would make a difference on anything, right? But I think as an adult, it it just it kind of comes together really nicely. And again, it's all throughout the film. Yeah. I mean, I didn't live in LA when this came out, of course, but like I think about this movie whenever I'm stuck in traffic. You know, I, I think about like this whole speech from Judge Doom. Toontown will be a race in a matter of minutes. <laughs> 
suppose you think no one's going to notice Toontown's disappeared? Who's got time to wonder what happened to some ridiculous talking mice when you're driving by at 75 miles an hour? What are you talking about? There's no road past Toontown. Not yet. Several months ago, I had the good providence to stumble upon this plan of the city councils. A construction plan of epic proportions. We are calling it a freeway. Freeway? What the hell's a freeway? Eight lanes of shimmering cement running from here to Pasadena. Smooth, safe, fast. Traffic jams will be a thing of the past. And when I work on like my research project where I'm like looking into old LA history, just reading about people's ability to go to work on train cars, to go to the beach on these like electric rail cars in the 30s, I'm so jealous. Like they were living in the future in the past. And now we're here still trying to build the subway. And we just opened like three new stations like a couple weeks ago. And I love that. But we're rebuilding what we used to have. First time I brought my kid on a subway in L.A., guess what I saw? Dead body. What? I've been on the subway in New York for my entire life. Never saw a dead body. Literally first time, dead body. Oh, oh my God. Yeah, it was pretty rough. Are you going to take your kid again? No, never. Uh, what? There can't be another dead body. That has to be the only time. <laughs> no, we ride the New York City subway. Um, I just think that this movie is full of all these really fun nods to where we've been, where we're going. If you look, you know, you talked about this earlier about like you see Eddie Valiant's brother's desk. It's covered in dust. But there's so many fun little like clues told throughout the whole film. Like if you look at that newspaper in Eddie's office, you see that goofy uh, was cleared of spy charges. <laughs> and I feel like there are all these like little details. And I know some people get very upset about this, but the film that Roger Rabbit is watching actually came out in 1949 <gasps> and not 1947, but uh, they kept it in there. And you know what? Actually thinking about it, that whole scene in the, in the, in the theater, in the soapbox and all of that, and also the look of Jessica Rabbit, I think this movie is a lot more influenced by Sullivan's travels than people oh, say, yeah. you know, because even that is like the message of Sullivan's travels. People need to get to laugh. You're right. I like, oh, you're right. Right. Because that is like his low key arc. Right. Eddie Valiant. Yeah. But then also it goes into the part of the arc where we always talk about people laughing as like killing them and slaying them and then making it literal. Why do we talk about laughter like that? Like you're a comedian. Why do people say we killed it? Why are, we're killing them out there. I'm not the person to ask in the sense of like, I can really give you an educated answer, but I will say this. I think that doing comedy is such an, you're opening yourself to the audience. You're saying, judge me. And the only way I'm going to know that if it works is if you laugh at me. So I want your, I want you to laugh at me for the reasons I want you to laugh at me. So you're being very vulnerable. And so I think you have to be adversarial with them. Like I, I killed them. We crushed, we did this. Like you, you, you beat them. You won them over in this, like in this battle. Like you came out there and you controlled their will. I think there's an element of that. Oh, that's interesting. It's almost like you're most intimate and right. flinty and protective with the people that you are, in a way, most vulnerable with or closest to. A hundred percent. I'm saying that kind of backwards, but you know what I mean. Like you're, you're more prone to be like cut it out to people that you actually deeply love. It's like you're going into a cage match. It's like a fight club style. Like, you know, it's like, so you want to come out and enjoy that victory. Like you beat them. You didn't laugh with them. They laughed, you know, you controlled them in some way. By the way, I want to ask you a question I never realized until I watched it last night. 
let's just talk about the title of the film. Is there anything about the title of the film that's interesting to you? Different, confusing, hmm. maybe even wrong. Besides frame to censored? Besides frame to censored. And I do think framed is so much better. I do too. I wonder if he didn't use framed because it was about comics and panels and then they're already framed by nature and he wanted a bigger comic panel contract. So like framed is a good thing. I don't know. Anyway, muttering to myself. <laughs> well, I'll answer the question for you. There is no question mark. Oh. <laughs> Who framed Roger Rabbit? No question mark. And that is like a very much a, a Hollywood sign of bad luck. We talked about Rabbit's Foot being good luck. But who framed Roger Rabbit has no question mark because in Hollywood, you are not supposed to have a question mark in your film title. It's bad luck. Like, what about Bob? Maybe it's bad luck. <laughs> oh, and we should say, you know who we haven't complimented in this? Who? Kathleen Turner being the voice oh, of Jessica Rabbit. Right. I mean, Kathleen Turner is just the most perfect voice casting for this in the world. I mean, not only is she... The voice of being a femme fatale with movies like, you know, Body Heat, you know, and of course, knowing Zemeckis through all of the Romancing the Stone movies, she had this whole noir vibe that she'd been you know, cultivating forever. And she has that voice. Like, there's this great interview with Kathleen Turner from the mid 80s in the New York Times. It's like her and Maureen Dowd, who still writes for the paper. And Maureen Dowd is like interviewing her about, about being like the star of Body Heat. And she says, that she's always surprised that like more actresses in Hollywood don't spend more time working on their voice and that she created her voice, that kind of deep, husky Jessica voice by holding pencil erasers in the back of her teeth until she learned to talk all deep. But that after she did Body Heat, she got a letter from a woman we deeply love on this show, Barbara Stanwyck. Uh, Barbara Stanwyck, of course, being like double indemnity, our goddess. And Barbara Stanwyck wrote Kathleen Turner and said, the only one who could have done it better is me. Wow. Right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So nobody else could be the voice of Jessica Rabbit but her, clearly. Let's just talk about another voice and a voice that you may or may not know, but it's uh, Mae Questel, right? Mae Questel is the voice of uh, Betty Boop. And this is Betty Boop's, I think, last appearance, right, in this film. She also did Olive Oil, but she's in Roger Rabbit as Betty Boop. You get this great scene with her and Bob Hoskins that I absolutely love, and she's still in black and white. Cigars, cigarettes, Eddie Valiant. Betty? Long time no see. What are you doing here? Work's been kind of slow since cartoons went to color, but I still got it, Eddie. Boop, boop, be doop, boop. Yeah, you still got it. I, I don't know. I love that scene, and watching it again, I thought that was really awesome. And I think it adds to this tone that's in the film about how this world is falling apart. You know how the good way that Toontown used to exist is at risk of being crumbling when poor Betty can't even make a career because she's not black and white. And to cut from like black and white Betty to full color Jessica, it's like you see the change in style and what audiences want to see. And also, by the way, while we're talking about like voices getting their final hurrah, Mel Blanc. Last movie he does, and it's his last time getting to do, like, Bugs Bunny, Daffy Duck, Porky. He also always did Yosemite Sam, but he couldn't do the Yosemite Sam in this one because it's 70. He just couldn't get that in his voice anymore. His voice wouldn't do it. But that's beautiful. You know, so Mel Blanc saluting this, even as Chuck Jones very much disliked this movie and said that it was basically Tron all over again. What? No. Yeah. 
He said it was Tron all over again, basically. We called it a successful Tron and said that Roger was not appealing, that his wife hated Roger, and that he said that he figured this movie was so expensive that it cost more to make than all of the Warner Brothers cartoons. And he asked the journalist interviewing him, what would you rather own? All of the Warner cartoons or just Who Framed Roger Rabbit? And look, you know, there are so many cartoons that didn't even make it in, you know, contractual issues and time constraints kept characters like Popeye and Chippendale and Pepe Le Pew and Mighty Mouse and Tom and Jerry and Casper the Friendly Ghost, Witch Hazel, Heckle and Jekyll, characters from Fantasia and even Superman out of the final cut. And, you know, I think when you watch these movies, it's a feat of really passionate filmmakers that allow their characters to be intermingled with because it only is, it's so great for the fans. Like we love it. And it's so fun to see. And that's how I felt when I was watching Chippendales. It was, I just enjoyed every moment of it. Cause yes, it's all these surprise cameos, but it doesn't feel bloated and weird. Like when you see like an action movie do that, or, you know, like when you have like 90 cast members of fast 10, you know, this is like much <laughs> more of, uh, this is much more like, Oh, you get to see all your, it's like playing. You talked about Bob Hoskins playing with, you know, watching his kids play. It's its watching that. It's like we have the whole toolbox we can make anything with. And I think that that's, there's a sense of fun there. And as we get further and further down this corporate wormhole where companies are siloing off their goods, it gets harder and harder to mix and match and have these nights. And I know they're stupid, but remember like when I was like, it's blackout night on NBC. So Friends have a blackout and Will and Grace have a blackout and Seinfeld has a blackout. Like they all did blackouts. Like there's like, and that's obviously all under one roof, but this idea that you could kind of mix and match people and put them together and see them in different ways. I think we're just losing that, the fun of that. Look, it's overdone at points, but uh, I, I like a little little mishmash. No, I think it's really true. If, if anything, this film's creation and its arc and its amazing final product is really a testament to what happens when a corporation pushes itself to go beyond what it thinks it's supposed to be doing. Yeah, You know, when it gets uncomfortable and when it does something uncomfortable and then it becomes so wonderful that it's a hit. And then I guess I'm glad that there were so much weird tensions and uncomfortability about it that we didn't get more Roger Rabbits and they didn't ruin it. We got this one perfect thing, which is kind of how I want Hollywood to work. We talked about this when we were talking about Indiana Jones. Anything else sometimes, like sometimes stories don't need a sequel. They just don't. And this is a very self-contained story. And I think that when you try to do something different, like if it's a Roger Rabbit, like backstory of how he became famous, is that interesting? No, I think part of the interesting thing here is the partnership. It's not like we want, like people follow the wrong thread sometimes. And it's because I think it's group think. This is a movie that was done pretty much an isolated world. And I think the reason why they don't make a sequel or they didn't make a sequel in the moment was of that big rabbit foot energy. It was like, all right, well, yes, it worked, but I'm going to now, next time I'm going to get my say on this. I'm going to get my say. Like, like what people don't realize, I think, is that in tremendous success, everybody wants to take a part in why it's successful. And as a part of that, also, they don't realize, oh, this is successful because I backed off. It's like, this was successful, but if I was in there, it would have even been more successful. I think that that's an energy that pervades a lot of studio heads and stuff where it's like, well, yeah, but next time we're going to tone down this. And next time we're not going to do any of that. And I, I wouldn't want to work under those circumstances. Here they got lucky. They almost flew under the radar hilariously at a $50 million movie, the highest you know, animated film of all time. But they kind of did. You know, I don't think anyone expected it to be as big as it was. And redefining for the studio. 
No, I think you are exactly right. I don't know. I don't know how to fix the <laughs> the fact that we have so many people with opinions that maybe don't need to be there. I think the reason why the internet can be so annoying is because people feel obligated to have an opinion on everything. And if they can't think of a positive one, then they immediately try to find a negative one. And they try to find a negative one that nobody else said before in the comments. You know, everybody wants to come up with the next new thing that nobody else said. And it tends to be some dumb criticism. I ran focus groups uh, for a very little bit of time when I was in New York. Or I was a part of focus groups. I didn't run them. They had professionals doing that. And what I found in doing that is you ask 10 people if they like something, nine can say yes. And one will go, but wait, what about this? And not only do the people that have paid for the focus group go, wait a second, nine has a point. They don't look at the other 90%, but then that one person can start to sway a whole group. And it's a weird dynamic of negativity that sometimes can kind of seep in, you know, because sometimes different isn't always better. It's just different. But I think we've gotten to a point in society where different is viewed as better. It's like, well, and I don't mean to bring it back to anything like this. It's like my research on vaccines is like, well, okay, are you a scientist? It's like, well, no, just because I think differently. It's like, no, just because you're saying something different. There's like these ideas that we get, like we get caught up in. It's so stupid. No, it is. I mean, that's not too far off from like, I'm the CEO with all the crazy genius ideas. They're so crazy. I'm a genius. If you've been paying attention to some of the pop culture news of late, uh, Turner Classic Movies has kind of been dismantled. And, um, you know, Warner Brothers seemingly is selling more and more parts off, you know, for money. Just like just they're just breaking down the entire thing. And TMC is like this last bastion of like this sanctuary of great film. And things are getting changed left and right. And what we're going to be left with is going to be this weird thing. This movie is affected by it. Baby Herman fingering is gone. America needs that. You know, uh, but we're talking about a movie like The French Connection. They edited the scene and that's now reflected in the Criterion Collection. Like, I don't think William Friedkin was like consulted before they made that choice. If he was, he definitely hasn't said anything about it. Yeah, I don't think the artists are making those choices. I think it's, you know, the the people that, that Eddie Valiant realized about. Here's to the pencil pushers, right? Yeah. I really still do believe in my core, that everything is a pendulum. And if we're getting more conservative, will that happen again in the 50s? And you know what happened? It didn't last. So I'm looking forward to what comes next. It's very annoying right now. But also, I'm very tired of the things I love getting turned into giant corporations, giant conglomerates, bought up like the red cars, and then sold away and destroyed. It is just what happens. They, in a way, Zasloff is not that much different than Judge Doom. And that, people, is an episode. <laughs> well, Amy, this is just the first episode of uh, Listener Pick. This is where our audience is picking episodes, and we are going from comedies into dramas. But we have another comedy to kind of balance out Roger Rabbit. This is a completely different thing. I, we've talked about these movies before. Uh, we still want you to make sure that you are calling in and leaving messages or telling us why you love these movies so much. But our next film is a surprise pick, in my opinion. Edgar Wright has made some great films. And I would think that if you're picking an Edgar Wright film, you're probably going to pick Shaun of the Dead. But our audience did not. They picked Hot Fuzz. And for that, I thank them. I love Shaun of the Dead, but uh, any excuse to watch Hot Fuzz, I'm so in. Take a listen to the trailer. 
the hottest cop on the force. You never taken a shortcut before? Just got a new partner. From the makers of Shaun of the Dead. Get us back to the station now! Get ready. I'm gonna bust this thing wide open. For hot crime. Well, she got Crockett and Tubby. Skip marks. Hot action. That was brilliant. And hot heat. Don't worry, he knows what he's doing. Hot fuzz. All right, Hot Fuzz is available wherever you stream your films. And Amy, I'm excited to look back at this film. I haven't watched it in quite some time. Neither have I. I want to watch it like an unspooled viewer and say, y'all voted for this? Okay, I'm opening my heart. Let's go for it, babies. Uh, Make sure you go to unspooledpod.com. You can make your votes and voices heard there about why you love this movie. And we will see you next time. A big thank you to our producer, Josh Richmond, our associate producer, Jessica Cisneros, our engineer, Casey Holford, our EPs, Cody Fisher and Colin Anderson, our MVP, Molly Reynolds, our theme song by Michael Cassidy, our fan art by Kim Troxall. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, rate, review, and follow us on Apple and also on Amazon. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram, and you can talk about all these movies on the Paul Shear Discord. Just go to discord.gg slash Paul Shear. Unspooled t-shirts are available at tpublic.com slash unspooled, but you can also get your very own deck of unspooled playing cards, which are absolutely gorgeous, all designed by Kim Troxell at podswag.com. Just find the unspooled show and you'll see it right there. You can hear past episodes of the show and bonuses like screen tests on Stitcher Premium. And for the official API, that's the Paul and Amy Institute list of our favorite films that we've ever done from the show, you can head on over to unspooledpod.com. 